So every year, people across the globe come up with their New Year's resolution list, the things that they are going to accomplish now that a new year has begun. And we use January 1st as the cutoff date of the previous year where we no longer have to worry about the things that we didn't get right because we have a new year in which we can make sure that everything is done perfectly. And if you're like me, that usually lasts till about lunchtime on January 1st and you realize you are already behind on something that you planned on doing. For me, January always meant this is the day that I'm going to quit eating sweets and I'm going to start eating healthy. And this morning I got up to let the dog out about 3 a.m. and I remembered that Whitney made sausage balls. So I ate a couple of sausage balls on my way back to bed. So I didn't even make it till lunch. But don't you laugh at me, child. My kid's laughing at me up there. But as I thought back on 2022, I thought about the condition of our church. And I've been seeing it for some time, not just in our church, but in in church in general. And we've talked about this. We've um, spent some time on Sunday mornings talking about this. And I've asked you if you're on leadership team to spend some time praying about this and looking at this is that church is drastically changing. Um, The understanding of the role of church in our lives, the importance of church uh, to the American family, the importance of church uh, to people who claim to be believers, the, the idea is changing. And in some ways, it's not a bad thing. In some ways, uh, we're starting to get away from what the American concept of church is, and we're starting to what I feel is become a little bit more biblical in our understanding of gathering together in the community of believers. And then sometimes we're going the opposite direction. We're, we're getting away from the American institutionalized church, but we're not necessarily heading towards a more godly understanding of why God calls us together. And so my sermon title today, there's a difference between doing something and doing something well, um, just came from a mindset that I have tried to really, really pay attention to this year. Um, Because with a lot of change, there comes a lot of frustration, there comes a lot of heartache, there comes a lot of anger sometimes. And I told you once a long time ago, four years ago, that one of the most formational moments I had in my Christian faith was when I was confronted by a lady that I respected very much uh, right before I went on this big mission trip. And she challenged me to do everything that I do as if I was doing it for Jesus Christ himself. And that is something that I have tried to really pay attention to, and I've tried to really work at in all things when we think about what it means to be a church. And if you've ever been in my office, you'll see uh, that there's a bulletin board in front of my desk, and on that bulletin board are just different things uh, that people have said that have caught my attention. 
And I want to read to you something that I've paid a lot of attention to this last year. And I hope it gets you to understand where my heart was and where my my thoughts were going this past year and where my intentions were going, um, as well as where I hope that we as a church can find ourselves going in the year to become. And it was this. Not great plans and programs, but more of Christ. Not more up-to-date schemes and gimmicks, but more of Christ. Not more business meetings and gatherings, but more of Christ. Not more highly educated preachers, but more of Christ. Not a more elite or socially minded people, but more of Christ. Not great numbers, but more of Christ. Elders, deacons, preachers, leaders should all pray and work and plan for Christ to dwell in their congregation. Christ must be in worship. Christ must be in any business meeting. Christ must be in any class that meets. Christ must be in our personal work. In any benevolent program that we seek to undertake. Christ must be in all activities of the congregation. There is no amount of planning or scheming that could ever substitute for the power of the indwelling Christ in the midst of a congregation. We must put less emphasis on building plans, must, less, must put less emphasis on our budgets and any other external or material matter. And we must concentrate more on one thing, transforming the congregation into the image of Jesus Christ. In this alone lies the real strength of a community of believers when more of Christ is their goal. I would read through that at least once or twice a week because I know that some of the changes that we have endured as a congregation this last year have been uncomfortable for some of us. I know that the things going on in our denomination have caused nothing less than a bit of anxiety in some of our members. And I can say this because out of everybody in this building, I'm probably the one that is most affected. And I'm supposed to be the one that is supposed to be the most at peace. And I will say I've had moments of panic, moments of concern. But ultimately, I am at peace because I know that if we are seeking more of Christ then God's going to take care of the other details. And I have told you that, and I hope that I have led you in such a way that you believe that. But I want to share with you a deep discomfort that has been in me for for quite a while. As I, I look at the state of our church, the state of the church in America in general... What I see is that as believers, we have become very comfortable with being Christian. We have become very comfortable with being Christian because being a Christian in America, especially in the Bible Belt, requires very little of us. It requires an acknowledgement on our part and an acceptance on somebody else's. And that's pretty much all that is required of us. But if we read through the words of Scripture, we don't see the Christianity that we 
are living out each day, being spoken of in the words, uh, especially when Jesus speaks and when Jesus teaches. And so I was sitting the other day hanging out with Will and Aubrey, and we were talking about just different things. And uh, this book that I'm reading is called The Unsaved Christian. Um, it asked a question. It said, how many Christians, and they had it in quotations, do you think really know who Jesus is? And I was like, this is a perfect question for me to ask. And so um, I chickened out asking them while we were sitting there. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, I sent both of them a text message. I said, what does it mean? To be a Christian. Or who is Jesus? And surprisingly they were both awake. Um, That was a joke. I wasn't surprised at all. I knew they would be. Um, It's at 10.30 in the morning when I need them to be awake. They wouldn't be awake. But for the next 30 minutes I was really surprised at the answers that I had from both of them. Um, And it was one of those moments as a parent where you're afraid you're not getting it right. But their answers are like... Somebody's listening. Thank goodness. Um, and I was, I was pleasantly surprised with the answers that I got for, from both of them. And I was honestly surprised at the difference of the answers that I got from both of them and the understanding of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It was, it was neat to see, but it affirmed for me that we all come to this place each Sunday with a different view on life. But surely to goodness, and surely by the grace of God, we all come to this place with one purpose in mind. That is to worship Jesus Christ. And so just writing down some thoughts, here's what I came up with before we jump into scripture. I want to I share this with you and then we'll jump in. I asked myself, what has church become? And this book... The unsafe Christian said, church or the idea of church for many American Christians has become something of an institution apart from God's own mission. It has become an institution that for many, instead of leading us into a deeper relationship with God and community with one another, it holds ownership over our walk with Jesus Christ. That's a scary thing if you think about it. That the very thing that was meant to lead us into relationship with Jesus Christ was meant to lead us into being able to share our faith with one another and to walk with one another actively has instead become something that has held our faith hostage. That has kept us from growing, that has kept us from being more disciple makers. The church in many ways has become an institution of rigid existence whose main accomplishments have little, if anything, to do with the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. As somebody who is meant to lead a church, that is a terrifying thing to think of. I'll be honest with you, this past year there have been times I have sat in my office and I've said, God, I don't want to do this anymore. God, church would be easy if it weren't for church people. God, why can't I be a farmer? Whoever wants to be a farmer, they get all the bad stuff, don't they? You think it's a good year and a tornado comes. But there have been times I'd sat in my office and I would just be drained of trying to figure out a way of how I can make people happy, which if you never want to make people happy, work with people. You'll get your wish. But more so than that is how do I get people to see Jesus Christ? 
How do I get somebody to that point where they have that understanding that the only thing that matters, the only thing that is important, the only reason for which we exist is Jesus Christ. I shared with you about the conversation I had with a friend in college one time um, when I said, you know, the only thing we ever talk about when we're together is Jesus Christ. And her only response was, well, what else is there worth talking about? That, that response hangs on my mind all the time because as God's people, what else could we accomplish here besides the work of Jesus Christ? But the reality of it is, is that so often, or so many times, we leave no option for the gospel to exist because of this institution that we have created. There's no room for flexibility in, in our form or our function. We expect things to go a certain way, and when they don't go that way, we can't handle that because it's not what church is supposed to be. And so... What we end up doing is we make the gospel change in order to meet our requirements instead of the other way around. We make the message and the purpose and the work and the whole reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth change in order to meet what we think needs to happen instead of us doing whatever was necessary for Jesus to take place. When I was a youth minister at a church, I was struggling getting some people to, to do some stuff. And any time I would approach somebody, I would hear, well, that's not what I'm called to do. That's not what I'm called to do. And the pastor who was two Sundays away from retirement, um, he, he got up and he made a statement. He said, your calling is never the things that you feel gifted or blessed in doing. Your calling is always what is necessary for the sake of God's kingdom at the moment that the need arises. And he said, if I never teach you anything in my time being here, I want you to understand that you are called to do whatever is necessary for the gospel message to be told in the setting that you are in. Well, I'm not called to sing. You better sing with all you got. Well, I'm not really a teacher. Well, if you can speak the language of the person you're talking to and you've heard of Jesus, you know, well, you're, you're, you're called to be a teacher. We have one purpose as a church. We have one purpose as believers. That is the message of Jesus Christ. If we're not about the message of Jesus Christ, if we're not about worshiping him, if we're not about helping somebody else hear that message or being closer in worship, then we're here for the wrong reasons. Then we are not accomplishing our task. The church has become an institution where the members work more and exert more energy to maintain buildings and expectations than accomplishing the goal for which it is supposed to exist. I liken this to having the most awesome shop but never building or fixing thing in it. I learned something about myself this past year. I really like shops. Woodworking shops, metalworking shops. You know, all those cool things. But I don't like the projects that they're meant to do. I learned that. I like setting up shops. I like organizing them. I like setting things up to where it would flow in a good way. But then I don't really like doing the projects there. 
Um, Mr. Earl Patton let me borrow a wood lathe a few years ago and all the tools and stuff with it. And I had a blast setting that thing up and getting it organized where I could go from here to there to there and, and building like little shelves to hold the tools and all that. And I promise you, it took me a month to get all that done. I made one thing on the wood lathe and I haven't turned it on since. There's no fun in it anymore. And sometimes that's how we treat church. We like organizing it. We like making sure that things are in order. But then we never allow it to serve its purpose. We never allow it to be the thing where a child hears about Jesus Christ. We never allow that Sunday school room that we gave money for, that we spent time praying for. We don't do the work that is necessary for it to accomplish its goal. That's not a good place to be. Most church members refuse to devote any more time or energy than they feel is absolutely necessary. We're busy people, aren't we? We've misunderstood the message of Jesus Christ if we're too busy for the work of Jesus Christ because we've got other things going on. Maybe our schedules need to change in other areas so that we can make more room and more time for Jesus. And in order to justify our existence... The institutional church must bend to accommodate or appease the world. I don't have to say anything else about that. The institutional church requires nothing from its members and is powerless in accountability. Well, if the preacher's going to preach on that, I'll just go somewhere else. Well, if the preacher's going to keep talking about those kinds of things, I'll go somewhere else. It is frowned upon to approach anyone asking or encouraging them to commit anything beyond what the individual chooses to give in time or in finances. And we're okay with that. In fact, it's preferred. I'm going to say I think that's funny in a denominational movement starting by a man that gave over millions of dollars away in his lifetime. And when he died, he left behind a change of clothes and a couple of books. I'm throwing myself in there with that rest of that category. It's weird to me that we set an allowance of what we're going to give God and what we're going to allow God, and we're only going to give it if everything's going our way. It's kind of like buying preference with God, isn't it? I don't see that being preached in the gospel. I don't see Jesus mentioning that anywhere. The church that has become cultural in its existence is in all actuality hostile to the work of the gospel. While it will cling to the words, the traditions, and the ideas, allowing the gospel to actually do anything that might challenge the system in place is fought off viciously. Here's what the crux of a walk with Jesus Christ boils down to. Is that when we read in scripture, God addresses something in our life, we're faced with a choice. We're faced with a choice and an issue of our will. And our faith is asking us, do we pay more attention to an emotional draw? Or do we pay more attention to the one in which we say we believe has redeemed us from sin and brokenness? And so we can either choose to be present before God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we can fight to pursue God. Or we can choose to let wants and needs win. And we can continue with a deluded 
and useless type of Christianity. Nobody in here wants to hear their faith being called useless, do they? I'm going to tell you as a preacher that when I had to think a little bit before, I was like, do you really want to say that, Matt? Do you want to say that? Do you want to stand before Jesus Christ one day and he goes, what did, what did you do with what I gave you? Well, Jesus, let me tell you, I put some really sweet curtains up in my Sunday school class. Do you want to tell Jesus that? Do we want to continue on with a deluded and useless type of Christianity? Each day we are faced with a choice of God's glory or my own glory. We can settle for being attached to it or being involved with it. But if we are cultural in our understanding of a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are in no way going to allow ourselves to be changed by it. And then he closed the chapter with saying, good people miss heaven every day. That is a scary thought. That we could spend our entire life saying we are part of God's kingdom, saying that we are believers, but then one day realizing we no more had faith in Jesus Christ than we did in the Russian nuclear program. So as I thought about how we would enter into 2023, I wanted us to go back to where Jesus first spoke with his disciples. Man, time flies when you're having fun. About what it means to have life and life abundant. If you've got your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus is beginning to preach his sermon on the mount. There's one of those Sunday school sermon lessons that we always have where we, we, we talk about the, the hallmark teachings of Jesus Christ. This is really, really where Jesus lays everything down that we want to teach our children when they're young. And pastor after pastor, year after year, study after study, generation after generation has, has spent hours and countless time on the Sermon of the Mount. But for some reason it is the hardest thing for Christian people to be able to live out. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I want you to read uh, the first 12 verses of it with me. One day, as Jesus saw the crowds gathering, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. And God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. And God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. 
We know those as the Beatitudes. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount with the, the blessed are those statements. I remember when I was in fifth grade at church camp, it was the year that I was right before I was moving up to teen week. So I was really too old and too mature and too cool to be with the rest of the kids at camp. But, you know, you have to suffer the system. They just don't understand people who are above and beyond. And our counselor every night before we'd go to bed would walk us through the Beatitudes. And it was his goal that by the end of the week, we would all be able to memorize the Beatitudes. And we went along with it, one, because he was taller than all of us and he was scary. And three, because that's what you do at church camp. You learn churchy things. And I just, I will remember the rest of my life laying there, lights out, and us just all repeating the Beatitudes. And that's really about as far as I ever thought about them. But this passage of Matthew begins with the author talking about how Jesus saw the crowds following. He went up on the mountainside and he sat down. Now there's significance in capturing the fact that Jesus went on a mountainside and he sat down. Because when Jesus sat down, what he did is he took the position of authority. When a rabbi would teach, they would assume a seated matter. Because when a judge sits on the bench, they are the final authority in the courtroom. And so as Jesus took his position and he sat to teach, what he did is he claimed the final authority on what he was about to share with the crowds who had followed him. And he began to share those sage words of wisdom that we've all held on to. And I want to talk about the first couple of ones because that is the foundation by which the difference of being a cultural Christian versus a born-again, alive, abundantly alive follower of Jesus Christ happens. And scholars have argued about the Beatitudes. We're really good at that as Christians. We, we like to argue. We like to decide we're right instead of the other person. What if, what if, in some instances... It's a both and type kind of thing. And instead of saying, no, I think this, you could say, hey, that's, I like that. What would happen then? Man, we could do such great things. So we can understand the Beatitudes definitely as effective teachings in answering the question, what is the kingdom of God like? That's what our goal is, right? To be the kingdom of God here on earth. So when Jesus says the poor in spirit, the meek and the merciful, he says they have a blessed heart. The very first thing that we can see is that the kingdom of God is a lot different than the what? The world in which we live, right? The world that so often tells us how we're supposed to do church. Jesus says to be meek. You don't see any commercials for men's razors saying be meek, do you? Guys, when you go out, be sure to be humble. Talk softly. That's what will get the ladies paying attention. You don't ever see those commercials, do you? No, it tells you to go out like a big stag deer, you know, like, hey, how's it going? To be merciful. Wall Street wouldn't be very successful if people were merciful, would they? Wells Fargo wouldn't have the, the same profit margin if they were merciful in their dealings, would they? So the kingdom of God immediately is something very different than human society. But the things that Jesus says are the reality for the kingdom of God, for some reason are the things that you and I tend to hold up here as those 
goals that we work towards, but we know we're never really going to get. Like the six-pack abs. Like the, the ability to retire and travel the Bahamas for years on end. Or just live on a cruise ship that travels through the Alaskan glaciers. Are there, are there glaciers in Alaska that you can cruise by? Sure, we'll go with it. All those things that we know we're not really that interested in, but they're just really kind of cool. That's where we hold these words of Jesus Christ. But Jesus' first one in verse 3, that's Matt, stop talking. We'll get through this first one, then I'll stop talking. If, if I go over, I'm sorry, you got nothing better to do with your time. We've already talked about that. Matthew's first beatitude, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. When Luke records in his gospel, he simply says, blessed are the poor. So the argument has been, is Jesus talking about those who are financially poor? Or is Jesus talking about those who are like destitute within themselves? And, and again, I think it's one of those yes. 100% because it all deals with a condition of the heart. Economically, if you're poor, you're going to be poor in spirit. Am I right? Anybody ever had to eat peanut butter for a week because you had no other choice? Somebody just remember back college days when kids are young, things like that. You get really poor in spirit when you can't do the things you want to do, right? You get really prairie when you can't pay a bill, am I right? We pray a lot when we can't pay a bill. So when, when some people see these words, they see them that Matthew is trying to spiritualize what Luke is trying to put into a, uh, a real world situation. But it's a yes thing Because in both instances, all human hope, all expectation that they are able to change their situation has been thrown out the window. And their only reliance of salvation is based on God. So first and foremost, in order for us to not be cultural in our walk with Christ, and we'll continue the rest of this next week, we have to understand that salvation, and we, we talk about this all the time, and hopefully we always will. Salvation does not come as a result of our goodness. Salvation does not come as a result of the fact that we have earned it. That we've got good attendance in Sunday school. That we've done all the things right. That we live right. That we are good people. That none of that results in our salvation. Salvation comes... Because God is good. Because Jesus Christ was willing to come and do something on our behalf. And if we're going to keep our relationship with Jesus Christ from becoming cultural, we have to approach every single thing that we say. Every single person that we encounter. Every single thing that we seek to do with that understanding That Jesus Christ did something for us that we were unworthy of. That the only thing that we deserved was death. The only thing that we deserved was destruction. But yet God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ. That is the mentality by which if we are going to gather and expect Jesus to be in our midst... We must first come to the presence of God with that on our hearts. 